I'm Hilary Goodnow, and this is Interwoven, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. This is the last episode for 2018, and I'm here with Deputy Executive Director Richard Pickering to bring you inside Elizabeth I's political machine as seen through the eyes of a teenaged William Brewster, who left Peterhouse College at Cambridge in 1586 to clerk for a rising political star, Sir William Davidson. The events that transpired in the twilight years of the last Tudor monarch, particularly around the death of Mary Queen of Scots, made a lasting impression on Brewster and would later influence his move to reform Christianity and ultimately to the founding of Plymouth Colony. So how did William Brewster end up at Queen Elizabeth's court? We actually have no idea, Hillary, that we know he leaves Scrooby for Cambridge University in December of 1580. He matriculates the first week of December. We don't know how long he's at university, at least a year, possibly longer, but there are missing years, and he does not return to the historical record until 1585. And so we have no idea how this young man gets from Peterhouse College at Cambridge to Elizabeth's court. Some of the possibilities might be that where Scrooby Manor is on the Great North Road and to get to Edinburgh, you need to pass through Scrooby. Possibly Elizabeth's ambassador, William Davison, meets Brewster there at Scrooby Manor. Or is it possible that Brewster leaves university and goes to the ends of court so that he was in London, possibly studying the law. And at that point, that's when he comes to the knowledge of William Davis. And we just don't know. There's not enough data. So a friend is actually doing research at the ends of court to see if she can find him there and we can flesh out these missing years. But when he ends up at court, he's a clerk possibly a secretary to one of Elizabeth's most important ambassadors, who will eventually become one of her three secretaries of state. But to think that this young man serving William Davison is serving with the other clerk is the grandnephew of Archbishop Cranmer, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. So this boy is moving and seeing the highest circles of the Elizabethan court and is connected peripherally with some of the most important religious figures of the day. When he's at university, the writers of the Martin Marprelate tracts are there as students, and these are young men who attack the Church of England in print, and they do it in a in a kind of modern way. They have a printing press that moves and they're printing these scurrilous tracks against the church and then moving so they can't be found. Eventually they will lose their lives, but Brewster probably uh, knew two of the three young men. And Brewster later becomes a printer when they are in exile in Leiden. Is there anything to suggest he could have been involved in this mobile press during his college years? We ha- I- I doubt it because it's just at the same time as he's at Elizabeth's court Mm. when the Martin Marr prelate tracks start appearing. But that's not to say he wasn't inspired by the bravery of it all. 
Why would leaving university before you've completed your degree and becoming a clerk or essentially a servant uh, be a better career move than finishing his degree at Peterhouse College? If you take your degree in many ways, your life is predetermined. It's going to be the ministry or the law or medicine. And so in some ways, I think we should think of university as a place where you went to get finished and where you went to make relationships. Mm-hmm. What was life at court like for William Brewster? I had a trip to England about a year ago and had no knowledge of Brewster's life at court. Here at the museum, we have a very good friend, Mark Wallace, who runs Past Pleasures, which is Britain's premier living history organization. He is a masterful impresario. And Mark was able to get me access at Hampton Court where I was able to climb up on the roof of Hampton Court. So the palace that's built by Cardinal Wolsey, that Wolsey in an effort to save his life after all of the divorce failures with Anne Boleyn, Wolsey hands the the palace to Henry VIII. Here I am in what is now an office, but was once Catherine of Aragon's apartments. So there's a copier in what was once the Queen of England's apartments. And Mark and I climb out onto essentially a a large gutter. And then we clamber up and we are now on the roof of Hampton Court Palace. And Mark takes me to the entry court. And he said, Richard, look down into this court with its clock tower, with its fountain. Brewster would have had access to this part of the palace as a clerk within an important man's household. Then we cross over into the next court and he said, Richard, look down into this court. This is how far Davison could have gotten in. And now look over here, Richard, because as a man, he could go no deeper because it's women in Elizabeth's court that have access to the most private of chambers. So you begin to see how close Brewster was able to get to the queen, but he clearly was seeing the premier men of the age. Um, And when we talk about uh, William Davison's fall, I can tell you about the visit to the Tower of London. So he's a clerk to William Davidson. What does a clerk do? What are his job duties and responsibilities? Essentially, he's handling papers and he's carrying messages. Unfortunately, the longest biography that we have of William Brewster that's written within the period is essentially a glorified eulogy. And again and again, you're a historian here at Plymouth Plantation too. You know the frustration of William Bradford saying, I will not be tedious. And as historians, we need him to add in the tedious detail. With William Brewster, he said, uh, I am going to do a, a longer history of the man, which he never does. So all we have are the three or four handwritten pages in which he tells us that um, Brewster spent some small time at Elizabeth's court, that he was more like a son than a servant to William Davison. And we know that in the journeys William Davison took into Holland as Elizabeth's emissary there negotiating um, English troops being used to protect the Dutch against Spanish encroachment, 
Brewster was accompanying Davison on those journeys. And Bradford writes of one journey when Davison is sent to collect the keys of the various cities where Elizabeth is sending soldiers. And to honor that protection, the keys of the city are given into Elizabeth's hand with Davison as her representative. And we're told that the chains with the keys of the city were entrusted to Brewster and he slept with them under his pillow before the return to England. And Bradford also says that when they returned to London, uh, Brewster was allowed to wear the chains as they meant as they made their entry. So it clearly shows the degree of affection and trust. And Bradford also tells us that there was such a degree of trust in Brewster by Davison that he was handling uh, very discreet matters for the man. And when you consider that he's only in his teens when he's doing all of this. What do we know about William Davidson? How does he rise to his position of power and, and come to be a mentor to a young William Brewster? We know that he begins his career at Elizabeth's court as one of her diplomats to Scotland. And to me, one of the most touching things about the life of Mary, Queen of Scots and the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, I believe Davison is probably one of the few involved in killing her that has actually met her. When James the Sixth is born in 1566, English diplomats are sent northward to congratulate the queen on the birth of her son. And as is usual among royal children, James was undressed so that all of the diplomats could see that he was well-formed and healthy. Because at that point of birth, other countries are already thinking about marriages. And is this child going to be suitable for marriage? That when James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was born, instantly nations are vying for her. And... Henry VIII does what is known as the rough wooing. And when she's an infant, he is already making aggressive actions in southern Scotland to compel that child to be betrothed to his boy, Edward, who will become Edward VI. And so Mary, Queen of Scots, at the age of five, is sent off to France for her protection from Henry VIII and the claims that would be made on her. So what is it like to be a young diplomat possibly in the presence of a woman who is showing her child off to the world and he sees both mother and child and 17 years later he will be key to the death of that woman that when it is recognized that mary is a real danger to elizabeth after several attempts to kill elizabeth and place mary queen of scots on the english throne it is recognized that action must be taken, and she is captured in the third and most dramatic of all the attempts that, that Mary and co-conspirators make against Elizabeth, and it is William Davison who is made by the Privy Council to get Elizabeth to sign Mary's death warrant. And this will be the downfall of William Davison's political career and life. And again, going back to Bradford and writing about Brewster's character, Bradford says, Brewster always had sympathy for those who fell from high places. 
and he saw that in William Davison. And I think it's the the moment that moves him away from the court, combined with the fact that his father's health was failing, and so he was drawn back to Scrooby to help his father run the manor while he was dying and critically ill. But what he saw happen to his master. Elizabeth signs the death warrant in February of 1587. No, I'm sorry. Elizabeth signs the death warrant um, early in 1587 after much delaying. Her court has already told her the queen must die, but Elizabeth continually delays signing the death warrant and then getting it sealed by the Lord Chancellor. On the morning she signs the death warrant, one of her three secretaries of state, Sir Francis Walsingham, who has entrapped Mary Queen of Scots, is very ill, so he's not present at the signing. Elizabeth is signing a pile of papers, and when she gets to the queen's death warrant, she makes a joke, and she says to Davison, don't tell Walsingham I'm signing this. The grief will practically kill him. So she makes light of what she does. She gives the death warrant to Davison and says, enact it and tell me nothing of it is until it's done. I don't want to know. He does exactly what he is told. The death warrant is sealed by the Lord Chancellor. It is given to the Privy Council. It is delivered to Fotheringay with the order that Mary Queen of Scots is to be executed. Elizabeth, within 24 hours, calls for the death warrant to be delayed. It has already in process of being enacted, and Davison is not forthright with her. And that is his downfall. He did what he was told, but when the queen wished to change her decision, he was not truthful with her about the fact that the warrant had already been delivered. So when Elizabeth discovers that Mary is dead, Elizabeth has been out hunting that morning. She does not know the execution is going to be taking place. And in the afternoon of that day, she receives news her cousin is dead. She immediately goes into hysterics of grief and very dramatic grieving and to distance herself from responsibility, she turns on William Davison and she uses this legal loophole that he never told her after she called for the warrant that it had been delivered. Davison is ordered to be arrested and taken to the Tower of London, but on the day of the order, he himself is critically ill. Elizabeth whose health was very fragile throughout the course of her life, had great sympathy with illness. And even when she was angry with someone, if they were ill, she would go visit them and she would send physicians, which is what she did to Davison. She sent a physician to care for him. He was suffering some type of palsy. But within seven days, as international clamor regarding the death of Mary Queen of Scots grew, Elizabeth needed to further turn on him. And so even though ill, she called that he be brought to the tower. And evidently his palsy was so dramatic that they bound his arms to his chest to keep the shaking down. 
And palsy for our listeners who might not understand the 17th century medical terminology is that it's equivalent a tremor to, to Parkinson's, possibly the that kind of of tremor and shaking. And when he is called before the judges, he never speaks out against the queen. He never says a word against her. He takes all responsibility on himself as a good servant. How do you think that this episode? Brewster is likely present for much yes. of this. Uh, he's intimately acquainted, as you already said, with Davidson. They have an intimate relationship. How do you think this is influencing Brewster? He's present for this cinematic downfall of, of a father figure. Mm-hmm. I think it's what ends his political life that he realizes how very dangerous it is to fly that high. And that from that height, you may have a terrific fall. Davison is in the Tower of London for at least 13 months after Mary, Queen of Scots' death. And during that same trip, when I got to go to Hampton Court, I was actually given three hours with the Tower's historian, Chris Gitlow. And I said, Chris, I'm here because... William Brewster was caring for William Davison while he was in the tower, at least up until he left to go to Scrooby. We know he reappears in Scrooby in 1589. I said, but I have no idea where Davison was held. And Chris said, Richard, you know, there was a Victorian antiquarian who was obsessed with where did everyone stay in the Tower of London? And his entire life was devoted to creating this massive volume of where everyone was in that tower since 1066. So we went into his office and he opened it up to the period Davison would have been there. And he looked over at me and he said, wouldn't you know, he's one of the prisoners that doesn't get included. So I was downcast. And then Chris, you could see the light bulb going off in his head. He said, Richard, there's another way to skin this cat. We can figure out which towers are filled and which are empty. And so he was able to get it down to two possible towers within the fortification where Davison was held. And then I said, "Um, Chris, while Davison was here, Brewster was bringing his correspondence, bringing him food, whatever was needed. But I said at the same time, so was the second Earl of Essex. And for for your listeners, if they're trying to imagine the second Earl of Essex, think Betty Davis and Errol Flynn and Elizabeth and Essex. This is the young man who um, was one of the great loves of her life after the death of Robert Dudley, the the Earl of Leicester, and in fact was Leicester's um, stepson. Very handsome, very chivalric, and he and Brewster were the same age. These were just young men in their teens. And the Earl of Essex was the only privy counselor. He was the only man close to Elizabeth that said to her, you need to release him. He has done nothing wrong and you know it. And I can't remember if she says it specifically to the Earl of Essex or someone else imploring her on Davison's uh, behalf. Uh, And she said, there is nothing I can do. A thousand eyes are always on me. And if I do anything, they will know. 
because presumably if she lets Davidson go and forgives him, she's putting all of the blame for her cousin's death on herself. She's taking full responsibility for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was viewed by many as perhaps a more legitimate claim to the throne of England than Elizabeth herself. Exactly. And so John Guy whose biography of Mary is uh, the key source material for the new Mary Queen of Scots film that's coming out. John Guy wrote a biography of Elizabeth two years ago, and he said most people stop studying Elizabeth's career at Armada. So with this great success of 1588, they stop at the height of Elizabeth's power and Elizabeth's glamour. And they don't look at the fact that after the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, the year before, there really are two Elizabethan reigns. There's Elizabeth from 1558 until the Spanish Armada of 1588. And then there are the disastrous final years of 1588 to her death in 1603 that are marked by um, economic price rises, crop failures, sustained war with Spain that doesn't get the attention that the Spanish Armada does because of it was the tremendous success of the English against the Spanish. Brewster was there to see all of it and the cost to William Davison of sustaining a period of such tragedy that John Guy in his biography of Elizabeth says the moment of Mary Queen of Scots death for Queen Elizabeth was an armada of the soul. So imagine what it's like to be a teenager who is essentially the son of a man the queen is destroying for the reasons of her personal stability. And Davison will never be in the queen's presence again. He has never returned to court. She will continue to pay him for the rest of his life, but he will die with a much diminished estate because he no longer has access to all of the rewards that come with office. So she will continue to pay him, but she will never speak to him again. Do you think that part of Brewster's move toward reformed Christianity and his literal move into Holland and eventually the move here to to the New World, do you think that's influenced at all by this this time at court and seeing what power the court had and how they could persecute people? I do. And, and I think that going home, taking care of his father and realizing that there was still sustained care from Davison. What fascinates me about the man is that he was continually kind to Brewster, even after he was destroyed personally. Brewster is young and makes a terrible mistake when his father dies. He assumes that the position as bailiff and receiver of the Archbishop of York's manor house, will just pass from father to son. And it does not. At the time of William Brewster Sr.'s death, the job is given to a cousin of a man who's very important in the English postal system. Brewster leaves Scrooby, goes to London, and petitions the wrong person to get his father's post. 
he goes over the head of the man who could have righted the position being given to his cousin. Davison steps in from, possibly from the tower still, and he writes to this man and says, I know you wanted to help your cousin, but this young man has been doing this work now for a year in his father's stead because his father has not been able to fulfill the position. And I wonder, was Davison using his last bit of political capital to protect this boy who had been faithful to him? And so the position is taken away. I think the, the fellow who receives it was named Stanhope. It's removed from Stanhope and Brewster stays within the position as receiver. Which makes you think that when in 1608 the Brewster family leaves Scrooby, this position, this manor house that they fought for, Mm -hmm. that they would give it all up to go live in exile in the Netherlands for matters of church and conscience. It brings more weight to that decision that they make. Exactly. Because you think of if, um, according to historian Peter Aykroyd, news gets out of London at 50 miles a day. And so there they are right on the Great North Road, that even though there's the distance from London, within a few days, they are hearing what's going on at the Capitol. He is putting up diplomats that are going north, that are coming south. He has access in that position to uh, an incredible amount of intelligence. And for me, what's fascinating about the civil structure that arises in Plymouth and all of the incredible innovations and experiments that are made in government here, Brewster must have played an important role in that because as the bailiff and receiver at the manor house, he's helping to administer all of the parishes that surround the manor house that's held by the Archbishop of York. He is serving as a petty justice So he is able to resolve issues between neighbors, between the quarterly court sessions. He's arriving here with incredible civil experience in addition to the management of a large manor. And in a very interesting twist, the relationship that Brewster benefits so much from, this mentorship of William Davidson, he passes on in his mentorship of a young William Bradford. So the cycle continues. And so it's interesting to look at how William Brewster in his youth experiences this this fundamental moment of change at Elizabeth's court. And then as an older person, he is watching this incredible change come in Plymouth Colony as his adopted son is in the driver's seat, metaphorically speaking. Do you see any vestigial structures of that old Elizabethan court system or these political networks that we've been talking about come over with Brewster and implemented here in Plymouth? I think for me, the moment where we see that experience playing out is in the Lyford crisis of 1624. Because um, what we didn't talk about um, when talking about the, the final entrapment of Mary Queen of Scots by Sir Francis Walsingham is they are intercepting Mary's letters with her co-conspirators, but they cannot allow Mary to know her letters have been read, which means they have to go on in her handwriting. So the letters are copied 
but when she's finally tried, they can't confront her with anything in her own hand. In the Lyford Crisis of 1624, the capture of a minister attempting to overthrow the church and government here rests on his letters being sent. Bradford, very wisely, when he intercepts the letters at sea, he copies them, sends the copies on to the recipients, and he keeps the originals that he can confront the minister with in public court. And I believe it's probably Brewster saying, you know, when I was in this situation, my master and the other secretaries that he was working with to entrap the queen, the weakness in their case was the lack of letters in her hand. We can close that gap just by doing this. So I think his experience was playing out here in the way he was advising Bradford and the other assistant governors in their actions. As the ruling elder of the church, he had no vote in their actions, but I suspect he is at every meeting of those governors and assistants, and he is just a presence of experience. And Plymouth is never a theocracy. You do not need to be a church member to vote in Plymouth, unlike Massachusetts, which was a theocracy. But the advisory role of the church in civil matters was strong, and it was strengthened by his political experience in England. With 2020 coming, what new story or new impression of William Brewster would you like to see people discussing and interrogating and exploring? I think his access to the great men of the age did he get to see Elizabeth? Who wouldn't kill to see Elizabeth the first? You know, that's one of the things I might give up a couple of seconds of life just to pop back to that court and see it. But we talked about the trips that he made to Holland with Davison. One of those trips was preparation for all of those soldiers arriving um, in the Dutch towns. He was there for almost a year, if not more, making these long circuits with the collection of the keys, the honors, the celebrations. And in that company with Davison are Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, Sir Philip Sidney, the great poet and warrior who will be killed at the Battle of Zutphen in Holland. Sir Francis Bacon is there as a young man. So what fascinates me and again, this is where all these personalities come together. The second Earl of Essex, that young, chivalric, handsome knight who is an intimate of the queen at the end of her life, ultimately he turns on her and he attempts to place himself on the throne. He thinks the city of London will rise up for him and place him in a position of power, and it never happens. He's captured and he's put on trial by Elizabeth, and one of his closest friends is Sir Francis Bacon. Bacon was destitute, the Earl of Essex had given him his great estate, and Elizabeth forces Francis Bacon to serve as the prosecutor on the Earl of Essex, and it will socially destroy Bacon. It assures his political career, but it destroys him socially that he was made to turn on a man who had once been his protector and his benefactor. Brewster knew them both. Bacon writes two pamphlets of apology 
or explanation, apology being a different um, meaning in the 17th century. It's, it's more an explanation of action. Bacon writes two pamphlets about his role in the execution. And we know when Brewster dies in the 1640s, the list of books he owns, both pamphlets are in his library. So he knew both men, the prosecutor and the executed. He has Sir Francis Bacon's Advancement of Learning, which is one of the first great manuals of scientific thought. And it's here in Plymouth. Miles Standish owns the first English translation of William Camden's Annals, which was a chronicle celebrating Elizabeth's reign. Think about the fact that Miles Standish could walk down the street with the book in hand and open it up to the, the 1580s and say to a neighbor, was it really like this? So the level of sophistication, I think for so long, um, historians have tended to look at Plymouth as medieval farmers and commonplace people. But what we need to look at is the level of sophistication in the first generation. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.